had a question in there and then I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you, sorry. I, uh... Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a consultant living in Ukraine and London, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer and proofreader, also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the dozen. In today's episode, we talk to Paul Jarvis, who is a writer and designer who's worked with professional athletes like Steve Nash and Shaquille O'Neal, corporate giants like Microsoft and Mercedes-Benz, and entrepreneurs with online empires like Danielle Laporte and Marie Forleo. Currently, he teaches popular online courses, hosts several podcasts, and develops small but mighty software solutions. Paul has just released a book called Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing in Business, a book we talk about on the podcast today. It's about being intentional and deciding how to grow your brand and business, a concept that we love applying to the creative life. You can find out more about the book at ofone.co. Paul also sends out a weekly newsletter called The Sunday Dispatches, and his website, pjrvs.com, has a lot of archives of his writing. We hope that you'll enjoy this conversation as much as we loved having it. So, Paul, thanks so much again for joining. You have a new book out, which is called Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing for Business. And we like a lot of your writing, uh, and we'll talk about some specific pieces a bit later. But since you do have a new book, maybe you want to just tell us about the premise of it and what you found in the course of your research. Yeah, so the book is called Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing in Business. And the thesis is really just that growth isn't always necessary or always beneficial. The point of the book isn't that we should never grow our businesses. It's just that we should think about it first. It seems, I don't know, it seems kind of logical to me that we should think about things before doing them. But in the in kind of the world that I run in, like the tech startup-y type space, it doesn't seem like that happens. So I just wanted to write something where it was like, hey, everybody, what if we think about things before doing them, specifically um, in relation to growth? Because what I found was that all the research and all the studies and all of the actual data around growth says that it's a double-edged sword and can be completely problematic. But then all of the advice in business and from thought leaders and in other business books are rah, rah, grow. Growth is always great. I'm like, it's a bit of a bit of a gap here. So I decided to, to write a book on the subject. What I like, but... Even when you're talking and when I've read about your thesis, what is interesting to me is my natural instinct is like, oh, but I would get so bored if I just stayed doing what I was good at or something like that. So I think, you know, as writers, especially this season, we've been talking about how when you quit your day job, for example, one of the things is people then start to, for example, take their day job, divide it into little chunks, and then they start freelancing. And then their whole life is sort of growing this freelancing business and they're still not writing, for example. So I guess, how do you... Like what advice, what is the process or what advice do you have to people who are sort of thinking about, I guess, their brand and how they uh, focus and make those decisions? Yeah, so I'd probably say two things there. The first is it's hard to just work in your business and not work on your business or just work on your business and not in your business. And what I mean by the discrepancy there is we need to do the work that we're getting paid for, obviously, because that's important. So doing the the writing assignments or working with clients, all that's important. And that's kind of working in our business. But we also have to think about if we're working for ourselves, we wear all the hats. So we have to do all of the things or hire out to do all of the things. Right. So like we have to like, for example, I know how to make money, but I don't necessarily know how to give my government the right amount of money at the end of the year. So I hire an accountant. I don't know legal contracts very well, so I hire a lawyer. And that kind of relates to the second point is just because we work for ourselves doesn't mean we have to work by ourselves. And even the title of the book, Company of One, is a little bit of a misnomer because I'm not advocating that everybody just work in a one-person business. I'm just advocating that we think about when it makes sense to grow and when it doesn't make sense to grow. 
So for myself, I have a team of, oh gosh, probably four, five, six, <laughs> six people that I work with uh, at any given time. And that's the right size of a business for me. No, they're not employees. I pay them as freelancers because I don't want to deal with HR or hire or any of that. I just want to pay them to do the work that I need them to do. And then they go off and they work with other clients at other times. Kind of like how I used to work. I started freelancing in the 90s. So that's kind of how I like to work. So I think those two things are really important is that we need to, when we're working for ourselves, we need to work on our business and we need to be doing the work in our business. And second, we need to be, we don't have to be working by ourselves if we're working for ourselves. Because it's hard to do, it's really hard to do all of the things that's required to run a business by yourself. Like I'm not smart enough to do that. So I've always had other people that that I've worked with, even with writing. I'm the worst editor, but I don't have to be a great <laughs> editor to be a, a decent writer because I feel like my job, and it's probably debatable, I'm sure, but I feel like my job as a writer is to put clear and engaging words onto whatever I'm writing in. And then I have an editor and a copy editor that helps maybe massage the sentences a bit or puts a, an apostrophe or, an, or a comma where they should be. So I think having like a mini team to lean on it can be really important and really useful. Yeah, no, I completely, completely agree. And that's, that's something that, that I do the same in my, in my own business. I always say I don't know much about, you know, bookkeeping. That's why I have a bookkeeper, um, you know, an accountant. So I think that's important. Well, I, I agree that's important. I was going to ask you to maybe talk through your journey, Paul. So you talked about starting and freelancing, but how, like, I still think, I guess the way that we frame it on our podcast is, you know, there's you know, maybe the creative work that you're doing at the moment, for example, writing this book while you were writing it or whatever. How do you balance that against what we would maybe term as your day job, which is sort of all the other things that you have to do to keep your business running? How do you balance that time and how do you apply those principles in your own life? I mean, aside from what you've already said. Yeah, I mean, when I so I started working for myself, I guess, 1998 or so, and I was just doing client services. So at the time, and up until about six or seven years ago, I was just doing web design for clients and online business consulting for clients. And then I was like, hey, maybe I could write a book. And I was like, if I want to write a book, it seems like a good idea because I really like writing. And it also seems like an area uh, that I want to pursue as a profession. So I wanted to be a writer that gets paid to be a writer. So I wanted that to basically be my job, but it wasn't my job at the time, right? And I think that's kind of what you were, what you're getting at there with that question, I hope. And so I kind of separated out my income streams where the money that I would make as a writer was completely separate from the money that I was making as a freelancer. And I told myself, okay, if I'm going to be a writer for a living, I need to make as much or more as I was doing the freelance work in less time. So it wouldn't really make sense if I was making more money as a writer, but I was spending twice the amount of time to make the money because then I'm not actually making more money if I would break it down by hours internally. Yeah. So that's kind of where I started with that was I wanted to, I wanted to build it as a career and it took ooh, probably about two and a half years to get to that point. And for the longest time, the, the writing was uh, an evenings and weekends thing. Because even though I worked for myself, my quote unquote day job was client work. So that had to come first because that was making all of my money and then the bulk of my money, then half of my money, then some of my money. And I only kind of ramped up writing once it started to make more and more income for me because I was keeping the two income streams separate. So even my first book, I spent zero dollars making my first book. I end up trading with a lot of people and borrowing a lot of stuff. No, I really like that summary. If you don't mind, I would really like to get into the sort of nuts and bolts of how you... So first of all, like, did you have a spreadsheet when you did that? How did you come up with... I mean, some people maybe aren't even really tracking how much they make. They get a salary or something. So like, actually, what was your system when you were first deciding like how much you needed to make and kind of what your plan would be? Sure. So even though I was working for myself, I've always paid myself a set salary that's typically 
the average of the last 12 months of income because when you work for yourself, it's not always, you don't always have a steady income, but if you average it out over 12 months, you can kind of see like what a salary could be. So I've always paid myself like that. I've always given myself basically a salary for 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 my freelancing work. And so that's kind of that was kind of what I what I had to hit and then surpass in order to say, okay, I'm a I'm a full time writer at that point. So that's kind of what I did. Like I did I do have spreadsheet. I'm such a nerd. <laughs> Even though I'm most like most of my work is creative work, I'm still I can't really get rid of the nerd in me. So my life is basically spreadsheets. So I just kept track like this is how much I made this month with writing. This is how much I made this month with writing. And then I break down as well. Like this is the type of writing that I was getting paid for. Some of it was like book writing. Some of it was writing for publications. So yeah, I just kind of kept like I keep track of it. It's a business. I keep <laughs> I keep track of all money in and all money out at all times. I know like you have a piece you inspired me to quit my job and it's it's basically saying like <laughs> please don't do that you know make your own decision based on your own life but I, so we're not you know i'm i don't want to know i'm not asking necessarily for the specifics as a blueprint but i am really curious about your decision making process and kind of the questions that you asked yourself and the things that you went through as you were as you were transit moving towards writing more and deciding when it was time to put more into writing and less into your other work or if you ever did make that make that choice. Yeah, like I said it was really gradual. Like it really it really took about two and a half years to transition and it was really based on that hard data. It was really based on like this is how much I'm making writing. This is how much I'm making doing client work. And as I'd made more writing, I would scale down the client work and I would take on say one less client a month. If I was, if I'd typically about three or four clients at a time. So I would take one less client a month when I hit about 25% of my freelance revenue with writing. And then I would take on two less clients a month when I hit 50%. And then it would be down to one client a month when I hit 75%. So it was really, really gradual. And until I hit 100%, the client work came first. So like I pushed back book launches because. I ha- I just had to get something done for a client because that's what was paying me the money. So <laughs> I had to I had to put things on hold until it was a hundred percent. It was actually hard to stop doing freelance work because at the time I, I really liked my clients. <laughs> I was actually working with I was, and the other good thing was I was working with a lot of writers, so they were super they were super helpful in terms of both like marketing and positioning and just in terms of like. I see these people doing the thing that I want to do. And it's really helpful to kind of look at decisions they were making. So I think that was really good. Like my all my clients at the time were all writers as well. So it was like, this is actually pretty beneficial for me personally. So yeah, no, I can see that. That's kind of the position. That's sort of a position that I'm in right now. So um, it, it is interesting. And that like final step of letting the last one go is it's like a security blanket, right? You have you know, there is income if everything else, if the writing doesn't work out or, you know, catastrophe happens, um, there's this income. But I think I think what's interesting is the idea that, you know, a day job isn't necessarily any more stable than a freelance job. You, you could walk in any day and get laid off. So oh, exactly. All of my friends that have worked for big companies have moved jobs or been like let go of or downsized like so many times and I've worked for myself for yeah. 20 years. <laughs> I feel like my job at this point is pretty stable. Like obviously who knows what could happen, but it feels more stable than a full-time job to be honest. Well, you've never been laid off, right? For yourself, so. <laughs> no. My boss would be such a jerk if that happened because <laughs> <laughs> Well, and right, you lose a client, you can get another client. It's different. You know, and when you have multiple going it makes a difference. So, but were you tempted? So, like, sort of on the theme of your book and how more, more, more isn't the right way, like, and what you're saying as well. I mean, were you tempted to kind of keep one leg in just because it's like, well, you could make more money if you did both of them full time or something? Yeah. Like, I mean, so there was definitely that where I felt like, am I just being an idiot? <laughs> like, stopping doing a job that I can do really well and that I know like 
I had a waiting list of like four to six months for client work. And like I was, I had spent, I don't know, 13, 14 years building up to be like the top of my industry. And I was like, is this like a smart move that I'm saying that I'm just stopping this because I want to do something else? Because I knew that that was working. I knew that that was really good. But I also felt like it was time for a career change. Like I'd been doing it for so long that I felt like it's okay for me to take a risk. So one, it was okay for me to take a risk because I really, really wanted some. I I was just bored. Like it was fun to do client work. I love my clients. Mm. I've been doing it for so long. I was just I was bored of that type of work. And the other thing was that I'd also, I'm basically a squirrel when it comes to finances. So I always pay (laughs) myself as little as possible and put as much money into savings as possible. And I've done that. It's probably the only smart thing, to be honest, that I did in my 20s. (laughs) And So I started doing that in my 20s. So I have savings and I always have um, like a liquid runway buffer in in my bank account where even if things go completely to hell and i make zero dollars i still have uh money saved in investments and stuff but also money in liquid assets that i can access just in case and i've just always kind of planned that way and i feel like that makes any work i do less stressful like if i don't have to think about like paying my mortgage next month then I feel like I can be more creative and I can focus more on my work instead of worrying about work and money at the same time. I don't think I'm smart enough to worry about lots of things at the same time. I'm really good at just worrying about one thing at a time. So yeah, I think most people are probably not very good at multitasking worrying. I don't know. Unless, (laughs) you know, like except late at night when everything just spirals out of control. But most of the time there's like one thing that's bothering you. Yeah. So I want to ask a question because... Like, this is my situation. I, you know, this isn't necessarily only my question, but I'm just curious because Megan and I, I think what's interesting about our podcast, one of the things that's interesting is that we have such different day job situations. So I have a really full on like corporate consulting job and Megan has more of a freelance job, but both of them are sort of things that take really a substantial amount of our time that are not our, what we consider to be our creative writing. So If you had, I mean, what you're talking about in terms of how you made that transition, I think makes a lot of sense for somebody who's in a freelancing position, but somebody who has like a salary job, and I totally get what you guys say about it not being as, or it's the same amount of insecure as anything else. But I do think there's maybe a different process. So maybe if you had some advice for somebody who was in, you know, more of a full-time job, like we can't get rid of two hours a week you know, gradually over time, for example. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm probably the wrong person to answer that because I've never had a full time. <laughs> I've never actually had a like a real job. So I'm not 100% sure. But I mean, I think I would start to think about like one, how I could build up a buffer of savings. Because if I was going to leave uh, like a full time salary job, I would want to have that security blanket because I'm insecure about money. I think a lot of people are. So I think that would be that would definitely be very helpful. But I think, yeah, I mean, you could you just have the time that you have to work with. And I kind of like when I'm thinking about my own productivity without spiraling in like learning about productivity because that's not productive, which is so weird. But (laughs) I feel like (laughs) if if I just look at my day and I see like, okay, a third is sleep. That's non-negotiable because if we're not sleeping, we can't be creative. It just doesn't work. I've tried that in my 20s when I was stupid. We established <laughs> that. Yeah. And then if a third of that is work, then we have a third left, which, I mean, obviously has to include some like social or family obligations. But I mean, it just depends on how much you want something. And I think working a little more for short bursts can be beneficial. I think if we're always working like an eight hour job and then an eight hour side hustle or side project or whatever we want to call it, we're going to burn out. Like it's hard to work 16 hours a day for a long period of time. But if we're working a day job and then a little bit on the side until we can kind of build up like a client roster or uh, a buffer of liquid savings, then I think it can be worth it in the short term to do that for a little bit. And then one that's going to tell you 
whether or not you really want to do the job you want to do. Because a lot of times we want to do something and then we do it and then we're like, actually, <laughs> I didn't want to do that. Um, <laughs> so I think it is important to get that that firsthand um, real world experience by doing a little little bit of stuff on the side. And two, you need like freelancing or working for yourself or whatever you want to call it. It's all about who you know, like that whatever that tired business advice is about like business is really your your network, I think is true. Like when I was working with Fortune 100 companies, it was 100% true. When I'm just selling products um, from books to courses to software, it's 100% true. I've never been in a situation where my network isn't the most important and most valuable thing to my business. So I think in doing a little bit on the side and building that network uh, is really, really helpful, but also the, the buffer. But yeah, I think it's tough. I don't know. I don't know what I would do if I was working full time where I was either like all of my time was taken up or all of my mental capacity was taken up by the job because I know some people who their job, it just drains them completely. And then at the end of the day, they don't have the the bandwidth to do more. So I don't know what I would do in that situation to be perfectly honest. No, I think, I mean, but I think there's always room to challenge back and it's like, okay, well, if you really want to do something, you need to figure out a way to do it. Right. And on some level. So, no, I'm just curious if you had come across maybe clients or other people who had that dilemma, because I do think that there are different ways that you can approach it uh, in general. Yeah. I mean, even when I was transitioning from freelance to 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 writing into products, like I didn't have a television or cable or Netflix (laughs) for probably seven or eight years. And like that to me, I prioritize doing creative work over watching TV. Now I, now I watch TV. <laughs> like I think that, yeah, exactly. I think that I think that it can change over time. But like for a while, I was trying to establish myself as a writer. And so I prioritize that over like Netflix <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and one of one of the things that we've um, talked about with other other guests and with each other is you can also just prioritize your mental energy and you can, without changing the number of hours that you're working, you can maybe decide, and this goes into your, this kind of feeds in a little bit to the idea of growth um, because you can sort of decide maybe you're going to be less ambitious at your day job and not look to grow that career. You know, you can put less energy into trying to get a promotion or get more supervisory, you know, roles or, you know, whatever, and just be, be good at doing the job that you were hired to do, but nothing more so that you have more energy left over for your other job. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it was, <laughs> I want to say this quote is from Spider-Man. It's probably from some, but it, I, like, I think it was <laughs> Spider-Man or Peter Parker's Uncle Ben, who said, with great power comes great responsibility. I think, I think it was yeah. spider Okay, that's good. <laughs> I have an eight-year-old. It's totally Spider-Man. There you go. It's Uncle Ben. <laughs> but I think I think that's true. Like if you d- if you want to do something outside of the job you're doing, maybe you don't take the promotion because that typically comes with a lot more work. So, yeah. I mean, just just watch, just read Spider-Man. <laughs> you'll get you'll get the answers. <laughs> so one of the things that a lot of writers worry about is the idea of platform and audience and publicity, and especially in nonfiction, there's the advice that if you're querying a proposal, you have to be able to show that you have a built-in audience and you have a, you know, a platform and that, that word gets thrown around a lot. And I guess when, when talking about that and talking about growth and growth for growth's sake, I think about, you know, platform for platform's sake and, how do you de- how do you personally determine what your goal level is going to be and then I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this like how do, how do you decide what is enough um, what's sort of your process and what's enough and what's worth it because you know even even publishers and publicists will say we don't actually really have exact numbers mm-hmm. of just what the right size audience is supposed to be or how big your platform is supposed to be. So how do you how do you make that decision when you're when you're thinking about it? Because I mean, obviously, you can't just go in and say, I'm not going to grow unsustainably, but you, you still have to decide, like, what are you shooting for? For sure. And I mean, to be 100% honest, like the first thing my agent asked me was my audience size. First thing publishers asked my agent was my audience size. 
before the outline of the book for the book proposal that my agent and I wrote to shop to publishers was the section on my audience size. So (laughs) 100% that is something that comes up a whole lot. But I didn't go into building an audience or building a brand or building a platform with that in mind because at the time I was happy self-publishing and that it doesn't matter what your audience size is when you're self-publishing because you're just going to sell as much as you can reach, which is which is mm-hmm. fine. So for my own audience, like I feel like I have so uh, there's two there's two factors for me specifically, and it just so happened to work out that my audience was big enough for my agent to care about and then um, a couple publishers to care about. So that was just the that 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 was just dumb luck. To be honest, like that was just dumb luck that my audience was big enough for for them. And maybe they have numbers in mind. I doubt they. Uh, I, I think you're right. I doubt they do. So for me, it, it, it's always been two factors. So and, and one's kind of a lower limit and one's kind of an upper bound. And I think both lower bounds and upper bounds are important when we're thinking about goals or what we want, because a lot of times we set a lower goal, like, oh, I want to sell more than like 10,000 books, or I want to have more than like 5,000 people on my mailing list, but we don't set upper bounds. And I think upper bounds are important, both in terms of like us feeling good about ourselves and where we're at, but also in terms of, of managing growth. So for me, it was two things. The first is I wanted to have an audience big enough to support me making a living off of them, basically. Because I want to, I want them to be able to buy enough things so that I make enough money to be able to keep doing what I'm doing. Because a profitable business is a durable business. If you keep making money, then you can keep staying in business, which I think is important for a business. So that's the first thing. And that relates to the lower bound. So I needed to make enough revenue from my audience to be able to support and sustain the living that I wanted to have. And the the other side, the second part of that relates more to an upper bound where I didn't want to have an audience so big that I could not interact with them on a personal level. And so what I mean by that is I basically communicate with my audience in one way, and that's my newsletter. And I've done that since November 2012, so six years. I don't want my mailing list to be so big that when I send out a Sunday Dispatch newsletter that I can't reply to people. Like, to me, that's so important. Like, these people are giving me their attention, and that's a huge thing, and that's an awesome thing. And if I can't return that in some way, however, so even if it's just like a, a one-line reply, like if I can't interact with them and learn from them and see what they're working on, what they're struggling with, and everything else... I feel like I can't be I can't be good enough at my job to make things that are actually useful to them and that they actually need. So my audience at the moment is well, it's like 30,000 people I guess on my mailing list. And so I send an email every Sunday. I typically get about 2 to 300 replies every time I send out an email. And I can go through and reply to that many emails on sometimes Sunday afternoon, most of the time it's Monday. And I feel like that's a good, like one, that's a great use of my time because I generate all my revenue from my mailing list. And two, it's a good use of my time because I need to know the audience that's paying attention to me. And if my mailing list was bigger, like if it was a million people or two million people, that sounds awesome. But I don't, I couldn't reply to two to 3,000, like even if it was by factor of 10 bigger, I couldn't reply to that many people. Right. Like I I don't want to have an audience that's so big that I can't interact with them anymore because I like that. (laughs) Like, honestly, I like that interaction. I like that aspect of having an audience. So that's kind of what I thought about. So in the beginning, so there's kind of two things. It's sorry, this takes a long time for me to unpack because it's something I'm super passionate about and something I've spent so much time thinking about. That's interesting. Is this kind of idea that there's a pre enough and a post enough? That's kind of the point of the book is figuring out what that point is. And I think it's different for everybody. And so when we start a business or when we start a platform or brand or whatever it is, we're pre enough because we everybody starts at zero. I, I mean, at, maybe somebody could start at enough, but it, it, it's less likely. So we start ne- at a place where we need to grow to be sustainable, whether that's money, whether that's audience members, whether that's anything. We need to grow. Growth makes sense. Growth is required. 
to get to a place where we can make what we're making a sustainable thing. But where I think people sometimes falter or tech companies falter or writers falter or whoever falters is that we don't consider that our mindset and the way that we work can change once we've hit enough, once we've reached enough and we're post enough. If we started in this mindset that we need to grow to make it sustainable, once it actually is sustainable, if we keep going in that same fashion, then we're still growing, but we don't necessarily need to. We may have hit an upper bound and now that growth becomes not as useful to us or not as beneficial to us or not as beneficial to our happiness or our audience. So, I mean, the point of the book and the point of how I kind of think about most things is that what is that point? Because that point, one, isn't static and two, isn't the same for everybody. So it can be slightly problematic to think about, hmm, have I hit enough? What does enough look like? And what should then change if I have hit that for this or for that or for another thing? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it does. But how do you turn off that part of your monkey brain that thinks that nothing is ever enough? Um, so I think, I, I, I mean, Buddhists call it the, the hungry ghost because no matter how much you feed it, <laughs> it just keeps grow. Yeah, it just yeah. keeps growing. And I think that it kind of relates a lot to like just this need to be wanted. And if we have more than we feel like we're wanted or needed more. And I think that that's a completely understandable human need. <laughs> but I think that we can kind of question it because it doesn't always like it doesn't always make sense to sense to pursue. And I mean, if I think about it, like I kind of ask myself specific questions that I can kind of go through um, with you in terms of determining what enough is. So the first thing is, why do I want more than I have? And I typically try to ask that three times because I kind of get BS answers <laughs> from myself the first two times. <laughs> I think a lot of people are in that situation where it's like, oh, well, I want more because of this. And then if you actually think about it, it's not true. Um, I also ask myself, how much is enough? How will I know when I've reached enough? Because if I'm thinking about how I'll know when I reach it before I've reached it, then it's easier to make decisions when I've reached it because I'm like, oh, I already determined how much enough was. So I've hit that point. So now what will change when I've reached enough? Um, other things that I ask myself is, does this serve my ego? Or does this serve or help my existing customers? Because sometimes we want more just for things like social standing. Like it sounds better if somebody asked me what I did for a living and I say, well, I have a, a staff of 500 people and we have offices across the, the world, as opposed to I work for myself at home in my Costco sweatpants and I share my home office with my pet rat, <laughs> which is actually the truth. <laughs> so, but that doesn't sit like, why do I care what somebody thinks about that, right? The other things that I would ask myself are, how does this growth affect profit, not just revenue? Because I think a lot of us obsess about the gross number, not about the net number. So sometimes it, it actually costs more money to make a little bit more money where if we have to do things like paid acquisition versus organic growth. So sometimes it can cost us more to make, a, it can cost us a lot more to make a little bit more. The final questions are more around like, personal mindset and personal happiness is that how would growth affect my happiness and the biggest one is how how would growth or having more affect my responsibilities or how I spend my day because I know that I like the job that I do and I don't want to be promoted out of it because I grow so for example with web design I could I had a waiting list of of months at a time so I could have hired more people and built an agency. But in that scenario, I would be managing the people doing the work that I wish I was doing. So it would promote, I would have been promoting myself out of the job I actually wanted to do. So growth in that sense didn't, didn't make sense. And I know how I like to spend my days, which is basically sitting by myself and writing. And so I wouldn't want to build a job for myself where I manage people. I could just be jealous of the people that I was managing. Like you're doing the job that I want. So I, I like I don't want like I honestly I don't want that. And I think in thinking about that, I can make decisions based on like opportunities or based on things that come up that are like, 
well, this doesn't make sense for the kind of life that I want to have. Because every business is a lifestyle business, whether you work for a company, work for yourself or whatever you do. It's all a decision that you made for a specific type of life that you want. Well, so I've actually just gone through a minor career change where I or transition where I made that exact same, you know, calculation was like, wait a minute, why am I why am I doing this where the only way to cut back is to have other people do it for me and then just manage them. Um, and so I've stepped stepped away from that. But so what would you say to somebody who has gotten deeper and they really have overshot on the growth front and now they're in a position where they don't want completely out, but they want to scale back. Like they don't want to sell their company and start over doing something else, but they really don't want to be as big as they are. Yeah. I mean, so I've never been in that situation myself. I talked to a bunch of people in the book about this and it's hard. Like it can be a little soul crushing because you have to make decisions that affect other people and that like you would feel the the weight of that responsibility i'm sure so it would be tough i honestly i don't know like if there's any specific things that you could do other than just be like i know i'm being true to what i know that i want and maybe help those people find other work but i don't like honestly i, I don't know that would be that would be really really hard and honestly that's one of the main reasons why I don't want to grow like I feel some responsibility for the freelancers that I hire where I want to make sure that they're like well paid paid on time they they like the work they like working with me like I always want to be a good client because I've had clients that aren't great clients so I always want to I always want to be the best (laughs) client but like if they worked full time for me there would be that I feel like they would be my responsibility to some degree and I never want like I never want that I don't want that kind of responsibility in my work. And that's a huge reason why I would never hire somebody full time because I don't want like I hate just I hate being responsible for myself, let alone other people. So it would be it would be challenging for sure. I think one thing you could do would also be depending on the specifics, but you could think about an area that maybe you overshot the growth and you could actually come up with some whatever arrangement or something where they take that part of the business. They can be responsible. Maybe it can be their business if you don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, that's a great idea. Well, I mean, and like specifically what I've done is I just yesterday actually like stepped back from being a partner and went down to just being an independent contractor again. And, you know, it's like I wasn't the only partner, so I was able to do that. But, you know, that is a possibility. You might be able to abdicate your leadership and then just go back to being like a worker bee in your own company. But that, you know, that can create if you're the one who built it, you know, political awkwardness to say the least. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's a lot of human factors that go into anything like that. Okay, can I quiz you on another article I really loved? And I think it's very relevant for writers, actually. So this is an article about how to be an introverted or awkward salesperson. I really, really liked it. I have I work in consulting. I have a lot of introverts that like to be with their spreadsheets in my team. And there's this perception that if you're not like a super outgoing person, then you're just never going to make it in sales. And so I really thought all the advice in the article is really great. But I also thought it was really relevant for the writers as well, because on, you know, like even, you know, you're a person that likes to sit inside your house and, you know, as you said, you know, write or you're a novelist that's really shy and, you know, you get all of your sort of talking done in your writing or whatever other scenario, but you can still build a brand and you can still build like a client base or establish relationships with agents and with other people without having to change yourself. So maybe if you could just talk about that. It's not really a question. Yeah, no, I I think that that's really relevant. It's funny because there's a whole chapter in Company of One on this subject. And my editor was like, I think we should maybe cut this chapter because he's like, I don't know how this is relevant. I mean, that's because you're <laughs> an A-type like extrovert. <laughs> you don't you don't get it and i'm like this cha- this chapter is going to be the most important for people who are like me who think that leadership has to be a certain way and i mean i think like even in like television and media the like the lead and I'm, I'm glad that it's changing now but like it used to just be like old loud white dudes that were always mm-hmm. like the managers or the like person in charge and i'm like 
it's kind of stupid because like I don't think one I don't think that that's true and two I don't think that the qualities of leadership that that those types of people possess are one the only way to do thing or two the the best way to do thing and I mean luckily I found a lot of research um, in writing the book that found that um, introverted leaders actually do a better job <laughs> at leadership that there's a lot of traits that people have that aren't like that that like like listening, I think it's kind of important for leadership. <laughs> like one of the most important things for leadership and there, there can be uh, quiet leaders that, that do really well. So yeah, I mean, I think that it's just, uh, we're kind of, and that, that again, that's kind of like one of the main points of the book is there isn't like one way to, to do this thing called business. And like, there's not one way to be a leader, even for myself. Like, I've never met my agent in person. Like, I didn't go to New York and, like, talk to a bunch of agents or talk to a bunch of publishers. Like, I talked to these people on the phone. And, like, that was that was more than than good enough. Even for the the publisher that is that I decided to go with, in the contract, it said that I would do a two- to three-week book tour. I don't actually want to do a book tour. I'm not, I'm not a big enough deal to do a book tour. Like, I just have in my head, like... I'm in like Boise or something like that. And I'm just sitting there at a bookstore with a stack of my books by myself, like twiddling my pen. And like, I, that, that probably wouldn't be the case, but it probably wouldn't be too far off the case. And like, I told my agent, like, I don't want to do book tour. Like, I don't think it makes sense. Like, I am 100% dedicated to selling and promoting the hell out of this book. And I do better than most authors that you've ever worked with. I guarantee it because my life is marketing and promotion like i do this for a living so i think i can do a pretty good job but i don't want to do so one i'm not a public speaker and two i don't want to do a book tour and so i told my agent i'm like this has to be taken out of the contract and she's like do you really want to like do you really want to die on this hell i was like yup <laughs> like, and then <laughs> when she talked to the publisher they're like oh that was just boilerplate anyways we'll take it out and like it was like it it honestly was zero of a big deal they're like yeah we don't want to have to we don't need to pay for that anyways i'm like i'll do all my promotion on the internet and it's going to do better for you than any book tour you would spend money on and so i think just like i think it so one i think it's totally fine to have boundaries sometimes like i think if we don't set our own boundaries other people are going to set boundaries for us and we may not like where those lines of those boundaries end up and two i think that we can figure out ways to do things Right. Like, so in, in, in that example, I wasn't saying that I didn't want to promote my book because publishers, I'm sure, and agents would be pissed off, rightly so, about that. Yeah. And I gave them like a plan of it. Like, these are all of the things that I'm going to do. These are all the connections that I have. These are, this is what I'm basically going to be doing full time for months at a time. And I know that I'm going to be doing a good job at this because I, I basically launch things for a living. And a book is just one example of a thing that I can launch. So I'm like, I am 100% dedicated to making this book do as best as it can be. But I'm not going to do these things. Like, I want to do TV interviews. But also, like, I can't see me being on, like, Good Morning America or something like that. I'd be, like, the worst guest on, a, on like, a TV show that big because, like, I'm an awkward little nerd. And, like, those are the type of people that don't really do well on those things. But, like, I can do a podcast fairly well ish i don't know you, you may have different ideas after you're doing <laughs> you're doing very well but we're also big yeah. nerds so it's the great there audience you for you <laughs> thank you so yeah i mean i think like being true so i think the, the biggest thing for me is i don't use my social anxiety or introversion or awkwardness as a crutch i use it as a lens for making better decisions about things that i do so i know that I can do well at doing things in a way that works for me specifically. And then I focus my energy and time, and my attention on those things. How do you know on that? Um, <laughs> because, so, sorry, <laughs> I like investigate people. That's my job. So I have a lot of questions always. But how do you know? So some things like that are uncomfortable for me, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm quite extroverted, but it could be anything, anything that's new. Like it's, there's always like a startup cost, right? To doing anything, any new thing. Right. And so I'm thinking about introverts or people who this still sounds like scary for them to come up with a marketing plan. Okay. Maybe they don't have to go on the book tour, but it still sounds 
difficult. How do you know when you're resisting something because it's genuinely not right for you? And how do you know when you're resisting things because it's hard or you don't have the resources? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think the the main thing for me is I'm scared of everything. So <laughs> I need to think <laughs> about like, is the decision that I want to make on this specific instance of something based entirely on fear? If it is, then I'm going to proceed anyways, because I can I can be afraid and take action at the same time. That's it's doable. That's how most people like grow as human beings, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Or is this decision something that one just doesn't make logical sense? Like a book tour for me, based on the reach that I have, it doesn't like it honestly, it doesn't make sense for me to be on a book tour because I'm not a big enough name to do a book tour. So in that case, it makes sense. The other thing is I've done public speaking and I know I don't like it, not just because it's scary, but also because I feel like I've be- there's better uses of my time, specifically for who I am, where I can be of more value to the audience that I serve by doing other things. And so if I take kind of a pragmatic approach to scary decisions, I can see like, if I'm just scared of doing this thing, then like, do it anyways. Like it doesn't it doesn't like you're not going to die. You're not basically if the worst case scenario is an embarrassing death, then anything that happens isn't going to be that bad. If it's like a business decision, I think if your business is making decisions and a possible outcome is an embarrassing death, that's a really hard business to be in. <laughs> I don't even know what kind of business that would be. But yeah, so like if I'm making decisions, if it's something based it, it like if the decision is based entirely on fear, I'm just going to do it anyways. And I'm just going to see if it's based on logic or better reasoning, then maybe I'll decide to to not do it. And I mean, for me, I also like to have like universal rules because I feel like universal rules are easier to abide by. So if somebody invites me to be a guest speaker at a conference, which happens fairly, re- well, not even regu- not regularly anymore because the word has got out that I don't. But like for a while, people were inviting me to speak at conferences. And my line was always, as a general rule, I don't do any public speaking. So it's nothing personal. This is just not something I do. Same with when my agent asked that. And she runs the Speakers Bureau as well. And like, I don't do public speaking as a general rule. So it's nothing personal, but I don't do that. Same with when my publisher asked. So I think having a general rule makes it a lot easier for people to be like, okay, well, that's just not something he does. Got it. As opposed to, that's just not something he wants to do in this specific situation for me personally, which seems a bit personal. So, I mean, it makes it easier, um, at least for me, to just have like general rules about where I want to have boundaries in, in the type of work I do. Yeah, I think that's smart. I also like personally, yeah, I'm starting to put in place boundaries. But I think it's also useful to try these things every once in a while and see because sometimes you get a rush of adrenaline and you actually really enjoy something that you thought was going to be too hard. So I like your fear point. And then later, it's like turns out that fear was a little bit right. And I'm not good at this. And it's not that valuable for my brand. Great. Okay, you can stop doing it. Exactly. Yeah. And all the things that I say no to are things that I've tried. And even with like, I used to be afraid of telling clients how much a project was going to cost, like quoting, quoting on things. Yeah. And I was so awkward about that in the beginning. And then I did it something like five or 600 times. And like, I can have a conversation about money with anybody now and not bat an eyelash because it's something that I was afraid to do in the beginning. It was necessary for my business. So it pragmatically made sense for me to get to keep working at it, to get better at it. And then it's not something I'm afraid of at all anymore. Like, I'm more afraid of scorpions than telling somebody something's going to cost them (laughs) $10,000. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're scorpions, so I think that that's valid. But I also don't think... Scorpions are terrifying. I also don't... They could kill you. Can they, though? I don't even think scorpions can kill you. Maybe I'm wrong. I think some can, those little black ones. I don't actually want to know the answer to that, because I feel like that's just going (laughs) to send me on a spiral. So... (laughs) Well, and I so I think the um, the fear around money is a really interesting conversation to have because I think a lot of people get into trouble when they go in and they make a decision like quitting their day job when they are afraid to look at money and and gather all of the facts and have the spreadsheets and be really clear eyed about what they need and what they're bringing in and what they're spending. 
And so I, I like that your approach to pretty much everything in life is to look at what you need to do and look at what are some alternatives that could possibly work better and what's the best use of your time or energy or money. Yeah, and I think I love that, Megan, also I was going to say something really similar, which is just that like if you're afraid of it, that's not the end point. Like that's just the starting point. Like notice that you're afraid and then it's like, okay, like why am I afraid and what else can I do to make myself less afraid? Like how do I understand it better? Yeah, exactly. Because that's how we grow. That's how we grow as people. Like I don't think, I think that everything is scary at first. Even my wife teaches, um, she's a firefighter and she teaches a first responder course. And she was nervous about public speaking as well. But to assuage that, she made a ton of notes. Like she made notes for every single slide that she was presenting because she was nervous about it. And now when she has to redo the course because um, things in first responder land have changed, like as far as like rules or however many times you have to do chest compressions versus breaths or whatever. And now when she's making notes for her updated course, she's like, I don't need to make as many notes because like I'm comfortable with this material. Like I can look at a slide now and know the things that I have to say. But in the beginning, like everything is scary to start, right? Like everything, everything that matters is scary to start. And then it gets substantially less scary with experience and with time and with practice. Yeah. And asking yourself, what are you afraid of? Like the process or the outcome? Mm-hmm. And sort of what are your what are your goals? So yeah, are you afraid of nobody showing up or are you afraid of actually standing up there and doing the talking or, you know, whatever? So I think I could ask like a million questions, <laughs> but I will not because <laughs> we all have other things to do. But yeah, thank you so much. I thought that was really good and I like that we ended on this fear point because I think it's great yeah same. yeah thanks it's all stuff that i care a lot about no it's exciting and we'll put all your stuff like your website in the show notes and everything else good well thank you so much this was really well, yeah, fun. thank you thank you so much for uh for thinking of me and that's it for this week you can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on instagram at marginallypodcast our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com and if you haven't already please subscribe to our newsletter the sign-up form is on our website And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening but it's going to take the conversation in a slightly different direction. So I don't know if you wanted to finish. No, no, it's okay. It's my favorite topic as you know, but I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) So...